Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is solo performance artist and playwright Karat Ann Kadwani, whose solo show My Name is Q is now running off-Broadway. My Name is Q has been performed all around the U.S. and the world and was a major hit at the 2013 New York International Fringe Festival, where it was one of six shows out of over 250 to be selected for an extended run. We spoke with Karat about the show, what it was like growing up in the Bronx as a South Asian woman, and writing a show with largely autobiographical content. Your one-woman show, They Call Me Q, has been uh, received all over the world at uh, various places. It's uh, gotten... Uh, you got the Best Actress Award at the Variations Theater Group Harvest Festival 2012 in New York City. Best Play Award at the Maui Fringe in 2013. Um, this play has been all over the place. It's been fringe festivals. It's been all across the country. Um, tell us a little bit about this and uh, why, why you decided to write it in the first place. So They Call Me Q is about uh, having a traditional culture and an urban environment and how that impacts identity leading to self-acceptance. I was born in India. I grew up in the Bronx my whole life, went to school in the Bronx. And I found that there were a lot of challenges growing up uh, in the Bronx with a different culture. What age did you come um, over here? Three. Okay. So even though I was very young, um, you know, there are still many obstacles. And these are certain themes that I cover and they call me Q. I play characters that are not only Indian characters, but also more urban characters, people that I grew up with, that I that I dealt with, and certain memories that I that I have that I feel really had a big part to play in who I am today. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was bullied by other kids because I have a name that's hard to pronounce. You know, I, I, I eat different food. I would bring Indian food. I would wear these sparkly Indian clothes to school events and for right. all these things. People thought I was showing off or I was a goody two-shoes or, you know, and, and they would just make fun of my, my culture. And, and that I think when you're a kid, that really makes you feel like, even though I grew up here, you know, came here when I was two years old and I'm Americanized, I always had that sense that I'm not American. So you grew, up in, in, you grew up in a neighborhood where you were not among people from your own ethnic background. That's right. I was one of the few. And of course, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like my Puerto Rican classmates, my Puerto Rican neighbors, you know, Sure, uh, yeah. It was a very diverse neighborhood. We had a lot of um, Arabs and, and, and Hispanic, and Black and White. But I guess, you know, you, you, you try to go towards the people that you feel are cool. Right. Which and, part of the Bronx and, uh, was this? This is uh, by Bronx Park East, White Plains Road, near the Pelham Parkway area. Okay, gotcha, yeah. Gotcha, yeah. Yep. Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe if I write this story, I thought, how can I, what is, what is my story, first of all? I, I wanted to write a solo play. I love I love theater, but I love the solo art form. And I thought, well, what could I write about? And and then I was like, oh yeah, I can write about my story. And I and I think that that's relatable. I think that a lot of people have this similar struggle of um, this, not only an immigrant struggle, but a post-immigrant struggle, right? Because um, how do we how do we define ourselves when we're trying to have give equal value to our home culture as well as the quote-unquote American culture. Exactly. I mean, did, you, did you feel like you were split into two competing people? Absolutely. You know, my parents are very traditional and they're always going to weddings and, and um, events. And, and I, you know, my mom to this day, 
when I go home, there's always some more Indian clothes and jewelry for me. And, and you know, we speak the language. And I, and, I, and I felt that I, how do I, how am I supposed to be a good Indian girl? You know, I, I have that, I make that kind of um, reference in, in the show as well. What does it mean to be a good Indian daughter um, in, an, in an American culture? Sure. How can I combine those two? And I'm seeing my friends, you know, hanging outside the building and their, their families are going to the beach and they're drinking outside and they're playing games outside. My family, we didn't do that. Um, so I, I tried to make sense of it as I was getting older and, and only as an adult can I understand that, you know, you really can't fight it. You have to just sort of go into it and accept everything that you have. What kind of influence did you have from your parents? I mean, did they support you? In Did they try and press the you know the Indian values upon you to try and keep that alive how how did they react to this yeah you know my parents are very supportive I mean when I was growing up I was in all the musical groups in school and when I was in Bronx Science I was on the speech and debate team of competing um, with other students all over the country which I'm very very blessed to have had that experience my parents obviously paid for that right. they supported that the whole time um, but at the same time they expected me to um, also adhere to the, the cultural values as well. You know, I think that there was a, in the show, there's one, another theme. Uh, one, one, one theme is the, the mother character is always trying to get me to, you know, cook and learn how to cook. And, and these kinds of um, notions come up when I started to think about why is that? Um, she never actually said these things in real life, but it's probably because a man likes a good cook. You know, uh, this is like all part of a grooming technique. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's particular to Indian culture. I think this is something that's part of every culture, even, you know, generic white American culture. Mm -hmm. Parents want their daughters to be groomed so that when they get married and their real life begins, <laughs> they can provide for their husband and their family. Um, yeah, that, to so me that just sounds unbelievably impersonal and, and kind of archaic, having to groom somebody for you know, the rest of the rest of their lives. I mean, values have changed so much over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years that, you know, things like that almost sound, and I'm putting quotes around this, traditional. I mean, they sound traditional, but like I said, I think it's part of every culture. And, you know, this concept of like, you know, getting married even, we see it in our American culture too, right? Like how many reality shows are there right now on oh, Say Yes to the Dress? Absolutely. About getting sure, married. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of people, I bring this up because a lot of people ask me, like, is that really like a big deal in your Indian culture? And I always respond, I say, I think it's a big deal in culture. I think it's a big deal in every culture, no matter what your background is. We have this um, understanding, you know, and I think that this comes from like, you know, Queen Elizabeth days when, when weddings actually started, right? I think that this, this, this notion is prevalent no matter, we don't even have to talk about it. It's in our subconscious. Yeah, it absolutely um, is. I mean, so many of the people that I grew up with, uh, you know, in the Bronx, I grew up not too far from you. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of their main goals were get out of school, get married, raise a family. What else are you going to do? I don't know. Right. I mean, my parents, you know, of course, that's that's part of the puzzle. Um, but they, they wanted me to be a lawyer um, because I was outspoken and I was competing and doing speech and debate. They wanted me to go to law school and be a lawyer. And, and to be honest, I did take the LSAT. I did really well. And, you know, my heart wasn't in it. I just couldn't see myself going to law school and um, becoming a lawyer. And, and everything that I do, I put 110% into it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I couldn't do that with law, then I just shouldn't 
waste anybody's time or money. Um, you know, I really wanted to focus on theater. It was calling me. And in college, that's when I realized that it's something that I wanted to focus on. When did you first realize that theater was calling you? Well, in high school, I was in the speech and debate team. I was performing in different categories, and one of them was a dramatic interpretation category. I actually went to the national tournament with that piece that I did, and it was a cutting of, a, of another play. Um, but I loved performing different characters, and I realized this is amazing. So when I went to college, um, I think I think the first week that I was there, they were having auditions for a play that was directed by a professor. It was Hecuba, um, a Greek a Greek tragedy, and I auditioned for it and I got the second lead, and it, that was an amazing experience. And and then just out of interest, um, I was taking a lot of theater classes, not just performance based, but theater history, world theater, um, what theater was all about, how it came to be, and sure, what yeah. the point of it is. So you you delve into into theater as an all encompassing concept, not just getting yourself on stage. Right. I you know I, I was blessed. I went to SUNY Geneseo, which is a state university of New York, upstate near. Sure. Uh, I Rochester. know where it is. Not too far and, from me either. Right. So I think that that you know SUNY Geneseo is was an excellent education in terms of I. Not only was I able to take the classes that I wanted to take, not even declaring a major or a minor, um, but I was also getting hands-on experience working backstage on shows, not just uh, theater shows, but dance shows, uh, musical theater. And I was also able to produce and direct my own shows. I applied for a grant. So we really learned a lot there. Right. And that is, has come, has become very useful for me now when I'm, performing they call me q at colleges and i'm having a two-hour tech and i'm my stage manager and my tech director telling you know the students okay i want i want this special here what percentage of the lights on so i think that that you know i look back and i'm so thankful that i got that education we love artists that know how to speak the tech language that's so <laughs> cool <laughs> that's right and my professors used to say we're telling you now everybody loves an actor who knows Text speak. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, we bow to you. When did you start writing? I started writing, they call me Q, uh, in 2008, actually. Is, is that and your first piece? Yes. I'd never before written anything, which is why I was so nervous and overwhelmed. I thought, how can I do this? Uh, to, to get my education on that, I read a gazillion plays. I read plays that were award-winning. I read solo plays. I read plays of, from playwrights that I just admire. And I tried to analyze the structure of the play. So I tried to figure out how they built up the, 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 climax, you know, the climax and how they actually got into the jokes. Absolutely. I read John Leguizamo's um, solo plays, Anna DeVere Smith, um, oh. anything and everything I could get my hands on to also see the different varieties of solo uh, play performance to understand and just get a handle on what kind of solo play I want to develop. And I realized that I like the, the form of, um, I actually created a combination. So they call me Q has a lot of direct address mm -hmm. with short, um, short changes, quick changes between characters, like the way John Leguizamo does. But then I also added longer character monologues in the, in the style of Anna DeVere Smith. 
Nice. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to On Stage, Off Stage. I am George Sapio, and our guest this week is Karat Ann Kadwani. And she is talking about her play, They Call Me Q. So, They Call Me Q has 13 characters in it. Am That's I cor- right. All right. Um, and I'm assuming that since you took the trouble to produce 13 different characters, each one of them has a significant meaning for you. Can you give us a couple of these characters, tell us who they are, where they came from, and why you spent the energy putting them into this play? Absolutely. Well, I have, I play, um, uh, I basically play from characters from when I was younger to present day. So I play um, a 10 year old girl that I grew up with, a classmate. I play a teacher who's a, uh, an American Caucasian teacher. And these two characters represent the bullies in my life. Um, they represent how a 10 year old can be affected and how a 10 year old's worldview changes when uh, not only a student, but a teacher undermines who they are um, in, in individually, but in front of other people. And it also represents um, power, um, institutional versus individual power. Surely the teacher, when a teacher bullies a student, it becomes a, a, a it becomes significant on a larger level. When you say um, bullied, give us an example. Yeah. What happened? Well, this is in the show. Um, you know, the, the the classmate was making fun of me, and then I, in my fear, I, I hit her. And um, this, this became a, a bigger problem because then the teacher, um, actually, when she saw me in front of the entire class, she slapped me. And, um, you know, all the students were laughing at me, and... This was significant because when I went home and told my mother, um, my mother really didn't do anything about it. And I'm not even sure why, but maybe she was scared. Maybe she was nervous. The point is that when a teacher does something like that, they obviously feel that they will not get in trouble. They feel that it will be okay. They will get away with it. Who's going to come forward? Who's going to say anything? Um, And so for a long time, I was really angry about that. Um, You know, basically because the teacher just humiliated me. Um, and you know, you, it's hard to let go of that. You have to really do some, some soul searching to get to know that. And it Absolutely. was all part and parcel with, um, being of a different culture because there were, um, statements being made about my culture, my background, who I am. So that, that bullying was, was really part of, um, you know, an embarrassing situation and making fun of my culture right. and my identity in a way. What school, what, what school was this? Was it public school or private school? It was a public school. I mean, like I said, you know, you take the good and the bad. The, my public school had a had some amazing opportunities. I was in so many, you know, school bands and the orchestra. I played the violin. But at the same time, there was this underlying notion that I'm different. Right. So, all right, let's go, let's go back to They Call Me Q. Give us a couple of characters yeah. in particular. Tell us about them and... Actually, can you give us a little bit of what they say in the show so we get a flavor of this? Yeah, I also play in college. I play a character that I've termed the urban intellect. And she, uh, her name is Alicia, and she represents a combination of uh, college friends that I had who um, were from the Bronx, but we were upstate New York in college. You know, it was a different time then. Uh, we, a lot of people that we went to college with had never even seen somebody who was not white before. They'd gone to school their whole lives where everybody was white. So seeing people um, who were who were ethnic was was a different was, was a big difference. 
Sure. Um, yeah. So Alicia is Alicia is an urban intellect, and um, she has a very short monologue, but I think sums up uh, you know who she is in the show and what she represents. So here, here's a little bit. You want me to enunciate that as an ethnic female, I am constantly reminded in this socio-political realm that perhaps subconsciously, yet pervasively, I am reduced to the other. So that's a little section of what she, you know, how she talks and um, what she has to say about how she sees the world. Reduced to the other. That's an interesting phrase. Right. Especially, especially the word reduced. Correct. Yeah, it's um, usually you hear set apart, right, or ostracized, or something. But you're actually diminishing the 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 nature and the humanity of that character through that phrase, right? And and that's that was a common sentiment of a lot of my friends when I went to college, which was that we were in um, you know advanced classes, we were in English classes, and when we would analyze the book that we read, it was always like, oh, that's that's your perspective. It, there was always this, this sense that we had an ethnic perspective. We had the other perspective, you know? Um, no matter how intelligent we were, no matter how, how deeply we could analyze text, it, it, we always had the sense that we were, we were not the majority. We, we had the minority uh, viewpoint. Right. You were different. Yep. You were set apart. I, I had similar experiences when I was growing up. My parents sent me to a Irish Catholic school, and yeah, you know, my skin was a little bit different. My name was uh, had the O at the end, and not at the beginning of it. And I was one of only two non really Irish kids in the entire school. Um, and as of course, you know, we got the name calling, we got the name mangling. Right. Um, and yeah. after a while, you, know, you, you tell yourself you kind of get used to this sort of thing, but you don't really. I mean, to this day, when somebody mispronounces my name, I bridle a little bit. And right. I wonder, you know, where it's coming from. And there are instances when I have actually corrected people. Right. And they have mispronounced it in a different way the next time. That's and, the story of my life. <laughs> yeah, it's it's... And how you deal with that is is always a question, because you yeah, have that, you have your gut instinct, and then you have that other instinct that comes in after that that says, "No, let's let's see if we can actually, you know, r remain dignified throughout this exchange." Exactly, and that's really why the name of the show is "They Call Me Q," because my whole life I had the same experience. People would mispronounce my name, and even to this day, people try to pronounce it correctly and then I'm correcting them it's still wrong and it's like this whole song and dance and it's finally I just say you know what why don't you just call me Q mm. and they're like oh yeah that's really that's much easier I'm like great and it's it's I know it's like a dumbing down of the of my name which I love but it's just tiring it, it gets to be really you know a nuisance to have to explain the name because I mean sure. I think that you know and as you're growing up, when, when that happens, you, you almost start to take on a whole different name, right? You become someone else because the name, your name is so important. It defines you. It's who you are. It's, who you, it's how you respond to people. And for a long time, I would respond to something that was nothing like my name because I was just like, whatever people want to call me, they can call me. Right. And so this is a theme that I, that I address during the show as well. Um, 
And then I, I get into the, the idea of self-acceptance in the second half of the show when my character goes back to India and we see a variety of Indian women with different Indian accents, um, different ages, and we get the sense that um, what is it to be Indian? You know, it's not just one thing. It's, it's a lot of different things. And uh, there's one character, Raya. Uh, she's a woman in India who's from an affluent background. Um, and we think that she is stereotypically uh, uh, repressed. But actually, I try to ask the audience through that character, if this character is making the choice to get an arranged marriage, she's making the choice to um, adhere to her, what her parents want her want for her, then isn't she independent? Isn't making the choice independent? I would assume she's, that the choice can be made the other way also. Right. So therefore, yes, she is being independent by making the choice solely on her own. Correct. All right. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Um, we're talking about how you feel in a country where you are someone different, or you are visually different, you are uh, culturally different. Um, is it how different is it to be South Asian Indian in America or the Bronx? as opposed to, let's say, being, you know, an American in Mumbai. Is there a difference in understanding or attitude to people who are from out of the culture in, you know, in India? Is it different than here? I mean, I think that that's an excellent question. I think it is different. I think that when, you know, when I go to India, everybody knows I'm American. Even though I look like them and I talk like them, they can tell immediately that I'm from America. And I think that's because of the way I, probably just small things like how I carry myself, where, how, how much eye contact I have, um, you know, how I wear my hair. I mean, they, they can tell in the same way that I can tell when somebody has just come here from India. Hmm. It's little things that you can pick up on um, before even somebody opens their mouth. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that here, I think that we're more, in America, we're more sensitive to it. I think because the, the idea of diversity and multiculturalism is always in our mind's eye and it's always there for us. We're always looking at, um, you know, all these statistics always come out, right? Like sure. how many uh, Hispanic people there are, how many Indian people there are. We're, we're always kind of judging what it means to be American. We are a nation of quantifiers, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Okay. What's the reaction been from audience members uh, of all ethnic variations? I mean, it's. Are, do you find that you're opening them up to ideas and experiences that they hadn't thought about or didn't you know didn't realize before? Did you get any yeah. negative reactions to this? What's what's it been like? Well, you know, we started touring at festivals specifically to get audience reaction from all over the world. I was really interested to see if the show could was relatable. Um, to people in the South, in Hawaii even, um, in Montreal. And I, I have to say, I, I feel very lucky and blessed to, to say that uh, people have really been enjoying it. I mean, extreme uh, reactions of women crying after the show, saying I helped them, to just, just random audience members coming to me and relaying their own stories to me. I showed, uh, you know, a 75-year-old Caucasian woman in, in uh Florida came to me and said, 
oh, I have to tell you what I went through in my life. Um, I, I dealt with racism as well. And then a, 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 a brown Hawaiian in, in, on Maui, when I performed there, said to me that he also has been feeling different because um, there are so many Americans in Hawaii now that to be brown Hawaiian is almost like the minority. You know, like brown Hawaiians stick together, whereas the American Hawaiians stick together. But, you know, a lot of people really relate in their own way. And I think that's the magic of theater. When you can have a piece that's really about me and my life, but when you're in the audience, it taps into your mind and makes you think about how this relates to you. How is this your story as well? And, and I'm so happy. And that's why it got picked up to be off Broadway now, I think, because the producers also see that value, not only... Um, not only in a business sense, but also on the true theatricality of it. It says here that you are the first South Asian woman to have a show produced off-Broadway. That's correct. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, my, my next question was going to be, ever? Ever. And really, that's... <laughs> it, it, I'm sorry, I'm really having trouble digesting that. I know, so did I initially. Um, because there are a kajillion theaters, A, off-Broadway. Correct, and... and B, I mean, there are so many people, at least in New York, producing stuff. And they produce it at festivals or off-off-Broadway. But off-Broadway, there's never been a South Asian solo performer. Uh, sorry, South Asian solo female performer. The last time we uh, heard of a South Asian male with a solo play was in 1996. Hmm. And his career has taken off since his solo show. It's unbelievable to understand that it's 2014 and that's the first time happening. But at the same time, you know, I think that what's necessary is that, you know, off-Broadway, Broadway, it's it's artistic, but at some level it's a business as well. And I think producers like to see that it will be relatable. The show will be relatable to um, audiences of all different kinds. And um, they like to see that there is a target audience as well. Uh, what's what's amazing about the Call Me Q is that, of course, there's a built-in target audience, which is the South Asian population. But at the same time, there's also a Bronx population that can relate heavily to teams um, provided in the show. And in general, um, for immigrants of all nationalities, because this this feeling of um, coming to this country when you're younger or even or not even being, I'm not even first generation. Karat and Kadwani, thank you so very, very, very much for uh, taking the time to be on our show. Before we take off, remind our audience one more time where your show is, how they can get tickets, and tell us once again what your website is. Thank you so much for having me. They Call Me Q is playing at St. Luke's Theater, which is at 308 West 46th Street on 8th Avenue. And tickets can be found on Telecharge. And one more time with your website. TheyCallMeQShow.com. Absolutely. Good luck with the rest of the show and the run. Thank you so much. Thanks. And it's time once again for the onstage, offstage arts calendar, this time for June 24th, 2014. I want to remind everyone to check our website, onstageoffstage.org, for the full podcast of all of our interviews. Our first listing is an out-of-town listing. Yeah, I know, very unusual, but a very significant one. As you may remember, Ithaca just recently hosted its first ever Fringe Festival. Well, our neighbor to the north, Syracuse, 
will be having its second annual Fringe Festival this coming weekend for three days only. Starting Thursday, June 26th and running until Saturday, June 28th. They will be featuring a dozen acts, both local and from out of town. These are acts you might not see anywhere else. And for theater junkies like ourselves, a rare opportunity to see what's cooking in the minds of our most creative theater artists. For information and tickets, please visit SyracuseFringeFestival.com. That is SyracuseFringeFestival.com. And by the way, I have it on excellent authority that the Ithaca Fringe Festival will be back next April for its sophomore run, so please stay tuned. The Homecoming Players will present as their last show of the 2014 season, Dottie, a brand new play from legendary Broadway playwright Arthur Bicknell. Dottie will be performed at the Kitchen Theater from July 11th to the 13th. For tickets and information, please visit either thehomecomingplayers.org or kitchentheater.org. And the Kitchen Theater itself, right now, is showing a world premiere of Judy Tate's new play, Slashes of Light. Slashes of Light is produced by the Civic Ensemble and will run until June 29th. For tickets and information, visit kitchentheater.org or give them a call at 272-0570. Next up, at the Hangar Theater, Mark Brown's play, Around the World in 80 Days. This show will open on June 29th and run until July 5th. For tickets and information, please visit hangertheater.org. And the Ithaca Shakespeare Company will present their summer program from July 10th to July 26th. This year's shows will be Hamlet and Love's Labor's Lost in rotating repertory at Cornell Plantations. Don't miss it. For tickets and information, please visit ithacashakespeare.org. And that's going to be it for the Onstage Offstage Arts calendar for June 24th, 2014. As always, kids, remember, go grab yourself a real good friend and have yourself some amazing theater. We'll see you next time.